Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. Today's episode is brought to you by Chronosphere, and we are going to be chatting with Rob Skillington, who is the co-founder and CTO over there. And we have chatted a lot on issues of observability. We've chatted a lot about the debt that can build up with, you know, large modern infrastructure that sprawls across microservices and various clouds. So that's always something we're interested to chat about with Chronosphere. This time, you know, we're also going to chat a little bit about what is the right way for engineering teams within organizations to think about solving these problems. Classic build versus buy and how to overcome objections about something not invented inside the organization or maybe avail yourself of some of the best open source technology out there. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Rob to the program. Thanks, Ben. Uh, yeah, it's great to be talking with you all. So we have a couple great questions prepared for you, but first let's set the stage a little bit. Tell folks just quickly, how did you get into the world of software and technology? And you know, what was the path from working sort of in the field you're in to founding and being tech lead at your own startup? Yeah, it was an interesting journey. I came from Australia, roughly uh, the first year out of college. Before that, I'd also interned at Microsoft in Seattle for three months, following on a colleague from Melbourne University. We were both mentoring and, and teaching a class together. And he told me he'd just got back from doing a, a full winter in Seattle uh, and to work for Microsoft. And I, you know, as an Australian, you kind of ask you, self the question, oh, that's a possibility. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of like how, you know, I got in touch and connected with Microsoft and, you know, went there to work as uh, an engineer on uh, Office 365, which then was called Microsoft Online, as mm. they were, you know, building and quickly launching to compete against Google Docs. And so, you know, that was kind of my first foray into it. And I've kind of always been fascinated with infrastructure and software, you know, even from high school age. But that was my introduction to the real world of it. And, um, you know, did some time there, a few startups. After that, wanted to go to a smaller place. But then, you know, really coming back to that, like engineering rigor and professionalism as well, you know, I was very hungry to follow that. And so, you know, it turns out that companies like Uber have an incredibly high need for reliability because hundreds of people can't right. work when the software is not running or get to the airport. So that's kind of how I ended up at Uber and then, you know, solving some of the challenging infrastructure problems there out of New York, actually. Uh, I did start in San Francisco for nine to 12 months, but quickly moved to be one of the first few members of the New York team uh, tackling the metrics infrastructure projects. And right, right. That's, that's how I got where we did today. Very cool. Yeah, we did a previous uh, podcast, Five Nines Uptime Without Developer Burnout. That was with Martin Mao, your CEO and co-founder, just talking about how do you diagnose errors in production, especially during a crisis and as systems get more complex. I know you two were at Uber together where you developed a lot of these ideas, as you said, dealing with so much data and wanting to be, you know, able to jump on a problem immediately and diagnose it and make sure there was as little downtime as possible. So I want to get into some of the issues we were going to talk about today around when do you build and buy this? How do you convince people to adopt it? But before we do, just one last thing. Chronosphere is a company that kind of came out of that experience, the two of you are at Uber and then you left it. And then can you tell folks what M3 is, just so we're sort of setting the stage here, because that's a big piece of the conversation and that's something open source, but it's shepherded in a big way by both folks at Chronosphere and Uber, correct? Yes, that, that's it. It's started as open source. Well, actually, 
funnily enough, it started out as an internal code name for the project that was um, not intended necessarily to be open source, but the metrics infrastructure project, which was taking over from Graphite at Uber. And uh, so, you know, it, it kind of started off as a Cassandra and Elasticsearch system and um, M3, as most of the world knows it, is an open source project that we started in 2016 under the same name to rebuild it from a you know fundamentally leapfrog in nature uh, style where we would go and optimize to every to the absolute last possible uh, step that we could to, to get the best unit cost um, effectiveness to give developers back the freedom to instrument liberally their applications and services to help them scale the business because there really was so many unknown unknowns they faced in production, right? And so having all of that mm. extra observability data really was, I think, a core key to how products got built quickly at Uber without risking the entire thing sliding sideways when it went to production. So that's kind of the, yeah, where and why M3 was born. And we wrote the open source software from day one, you know, under a GitHub repository. And so you can go back to commit number one and check it out if, if you ever want to, um, which is kind of a, a fun little history. So I've heard Uber has or had, may still have thousands of microservices. How did you go about creating this project and, and planning for it where, you know, it's obviously going to have to touch a lot of different different projects and fit with a lot of projects? Yeah. Uh, so Uber has 4,000 microservices and did at its height. I actually believe that they've over time been slowly trimming it back a little bit because uh, at one point there was two microservices for every developer, which was rather insane. So <laughs> there has basically been a, a little bit more of a reconsolidation. What's kind of fascinating, though, is at the very beginning, there were two monoliths. Like there was a Python backend that you know had all the trip store, and then there was um, a Node.js real-time trip service, essentially. And so, yeah, it really went from the opposite to very extreme ends of the curve. And now they're kind of like balancing out at a, a more healthy medium between the two. But in terms of managing, you know, rolling out infrastructure to such a diverse set of um, applications and systems, we had to really be thoughtful in terms of the abstraction level. You want to interact with the systems because it's also a variety of, of very different client languages. We were one of the few companies, I think, at the time that had just said, you know, let developers do what they want. Like, that's how we will move and execute faster. Uh, however, that came at the, the huge cost of supporting Python, Node.js, Go, uh, Java. So, yeah, the level of thought in terms like of what kind of abstraction do you want to offer these systems and developers was very important. And so that's why we were very keen on day one from developing you know, using open source standards where there would be already existing client libraries, for instance, for observability, for networking, which is kind of an interesting story because eventually that, you know, Uber has moved towards gRPC, but did famously also invent its own PC framework like Twitter did with Finagle. So that 
kind of got standardized and consolidated. And honestly, the same kind of thing happened with M3 in terms of like the interface that we wanted to offer people became Prometheus over time, right? And it actually started out as Graphite and we housed both Graphite and Prometheus data within the same backend, which was kind of different to how the systems of the day were doing things. You know, they were most of the time essentially just offering one type of language and backend, whereas we built the abstraction layer so that we could kind of layer on the different languages and ecosystems on top of that, both on the ingestion side, but also the the query and alerting phase. So right. that I think was critical to making sure people could onboard easily and and get going. And I will say we fundamentally from day one were very opinionated and needed to be a multi-tenant system where you could just add machines horizontally. Whereas like back in the day, you know, Borgmon at, at Google developed this kind of pattern. And I don't know Borgmon's kind of like um, the previous generation these days, but like a lot of people have come from that kind of age where most teams ran their own infrastructure for monitoring rather than using a centralized service. So mm-hmm. I think that that was another key decision to what made it quite popular is that like people didn't run into weird, strange edge cases in their own instance of the observability stack because the observability stack was centralized and ran for them in one very accessible layer, if that makes sense. Cool. So with your time at Uber, you know, that spun out into Chronosphere, which is a company on its own that's thriving, plus M3, which is this project touching lots of people. So now I'm starting my own startup and I say, you know, we're going to build something internally. It's going to become the next Golang and or React or M3. Like this is the way to do it. All the geniuses here will get together. We'll build this for our own problems. And then it'll create an ecosystem around us. We'll attract the best talent. You know, as companies are having that discussion internally of build versus buy, is that even the right question to ask? Like how should companies frame these questions about observability and internal platforms in your opinion? I want to start off by saying, I don't believe it is the right question. And it absolutely needs to be framed better, I think, when the question does get raised internally. Because at the end of the day, you're always buying a little and building a little. There's really almost no world in which you're doing solely one or the other. And I would suppose that the big thing for me is that I think what's interesting about even a project like M3, right, is that in the early days, since there was no need for there to be special things that the company needed from the monitoring and observability system, off the shelf was what made total sense, right? And so it's really a journey that you go on as the requirements kind of like shift and change in nature. And even as we just chatted about the versions of M3 that were offered internally changed fundamentally the more and more we realized, okay, off the shelf like didn't work in these certain areas, so we'll swap out you know, certain parts of it to build internally on. So it really is a journey and a selection of like what you're building and and what part of it can you buy. And honestly, you know, a lot of the time, unless it's core to your business, it's doesn't really always make a lot of sense to invest a whole bunch of time there. And I think that uh, at Uber, even if there were plenty of things built in-house, there was at least a default of if it didn't matter to the core business, you should always assess what parts of your problem you could buy instead of build to move the business faster. So yeah, I kind of believe that you should frame these conversations in terms of what does your organization actually need longer term in a specific area of concern, making sure to think instead of just looking like what do you need right now today, right? So you don't make short-term decisions that impact longer-term strategy accidentally. And then what lines 
lines of abstraction can you draw to make layers for the major pieces of what you do need in such a way that between each of these boundaries, something can be built or bought instead of you just having to wholesale build or wholesale buy. And then for each of those kind of like layers that you define, you know, which one does it make sense to build or buy? And on what triggering points should you revisit that decision? For instance, in terms of what are the major benefits today like buying or building and you know is there associated cost that you're trying to calculate there and when would that cost trade-off shift in terms of how many people do you apply to the problem right because sometimes it can seem a lot cheaper mm-hmm. to do it internally but then over time if your team grows to 15 people well that's a massive cost to the business right so mm-hmm. i think like those are the three key ways in which i would approach some of these uh, decisions nice so do you think it's easier to get internal adoption on internally built products. Like, you know, if you build it, they will come, right? But <laughs> is there sort of a internal pride associated with the not invented here attitude? Yeah. That gets things adopted faster? That question is really interesting. I think that there's naturally a, a tendency for folks, especially earlier on in their career, I think I'm guilty of it myself, that it can be done better. A lot of the old tools don't quite understand the current ecosystem and therefore it could be done better. And I think that there there is definitely a um, level of discovery that is really important to to go on during the journey of, of a kind of assessing a tool, whether it should be built internally or built on top of something purchased, right? And uh, that journey is, I think, something that you learn over time. For instance, when we started M3, there was a, I think, 40-page document put together in terms of, you know, what is the current state of the world today? And it was framed in terms of like, what are the problems do we have today? Why did we arrive at the problems that we have today? Is it simply like the way that we're doing things that could be changed to fix some of these problems? And really then a thorough assessment of what the options are on the table and the kind of like prior history and art right out there in the ecosystem. We actually had a bunch of talks with other companies of similar sizes at the time to understand what they were doing and the journey that they'd gone on in this space as well. And so, you know, M3 is quite a large project. So I guess like, you know, obviously that that level perhaps is overkill for a bunch of projects. But then I do think that that's some degree of doing that, just the process of undergoing that and holding yourself, you know, accountable to being diligent on that journey is important. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So we talked a little bit about the, the not invented syndrome. What are some examples of sort of like build by decisions that you went into, you know, you thought, okay, we made the right decisions or the wrong ones, you know, what were the outcomes and what do you think folks can learn from that? I think probably we've discussed M3 and Uber was a big one, but maybe dig a little deeper into that one. If there's others you want to discuss, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, well, one thing that's interesting is, uh, you know, there are actually tons of examples of if you build it, they they might not come. And, you know, I I was responsible for one of those projects before M3. And it was basically a a system that essentially optimized a lot of the mobile interactions with the dispatch trip systems in terms of doing real-time synchronization of some of the, the data in there. And 
that was kind of overkill for the time at which the product that we were offering on top of was being built. So that it was kind of set up to support Uber Eats and then, you know, it was naturally going to take over the dispatching systems. Um, that synchronization technology, though, fascinatingly enough, is core to the success of another, I mean, it's been rewritten and completely reimagined, but um, the engineer I was working with on that problem has started a project management company called Linear. Tomas is yeah, a Finnish engineer, and I think that that project kind of like to me showed the fact that like even though it's probably the right long-term perhaps uh, choice uh, maybe for that problem, it was definitely not the right time or place to build that. And people did not come because they had 99 other problems and integrating (laughs) onto this new framework was, you know, not the top one of them, right? So I think that it's really important to do that kind of consensus work, even if like you're kind of already carved out a whole area that you know you need to improve anyway. And, you know, the other one that's kind of interesting to chat about is we had a visualization tool that we put into place that sat alongside Grafana to kind of like show a more consistent observability set of visualizations and insights into the system so that an engineer that was just hired into the company could actually orient themselves rather than have to wade through 10,000 Grafana dashboards, which is a real number of dashboards that Uber had. I think 8,000 of them were probably not used in the last like year or something like that. But, um, you know, still, it was really a difficult thing to understand the complexity of the system, especially with 4,000 microservices, right? And so there was this idea that we could present a more consistent view and let people like navigate between the systems and services themselves in a fashion that kind of like felt familiar to people and then also showed the dependencies upstream, downstream, which show whether those systems were experiencing problems. Mm -hmm. Because when you get paged on call, the last thing you want to do is essentially work out whether there's the errors in a downstream system and you're just being woken up for someone else's problem, right? So anyway, this project was built Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, Unfortunately, you know, we started tracking the internal usage of it and it, it did not add up to anywhere near the level of Grafana. Grafana had a thousand plus daily unique users of the 2000 strong um, engineering force, which I think kind of speaks to how important observability is to people's day jobs in software engineering. But, you know, this system that was developed to give a more consistent view into things, while there were some passionate users, it still only had 50 to 60 users logging in a day. And it would have been better to probably build one of those experiences inside of Grafana itself or approach the problem in a different manner, right? Because we built it, then they did not come. So we've talked about platform engineering with folks before. Obviously, it takes a lot of backend uh, engineering, distributed systems, infrastructure stuff, consensus building. What are the, the sort of other hats and skills that you use when you're building out platform? Yeah, I think that the most interesting thing to keep in mind is really to understand what are the challenges of the business. And I found that, you know, through my own journey in that working on projects that were put in front of me was just fine. But if you didn't fully understand what was the most important thing to the business, then you really took a tangent a lot of the time, right, to what was actually delivering value to folks. And so, uh, you know, I would say, that that was a learning just in terms of you know career, but then also in terms of the projects and how to approach the projects, right? And so I think that at Uber with M3, that really helped guide 
what parts of the observability system to focus on at any point in time, right? The storage side of it, while the building of M3DB, the time series database, was both like an academic kind of enjoyable aspect, but also a nightmare in terms of like building a storage system that your whole company has to depend on being up at every minute of the day. It was definitely one of those things that happened much later in the game, right? Like there were tons of other things that matter more to the business than the unit cost of the observability system until the unit cost of the observability system was, you know, one-tenth of the 100,000 servers that Uber had. And then you had to be like, well, this is this is actually <laughs> the biggest problem in observability right. for the company at that point. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think navigating that really critical path of like, what is the special source and where is the thing that's going to be the most impactful from the thing you're working on and, and how to show people that as well and guide them towards that. Because a lot of the time, right, folks come from different companies, they have different opinions about their own tools and stacks and infrastructure. And I think like if you can help them see what is the most important aspect for your company, your project, your team and organization, and why that might need to be done slightly differently to, to the universe they're used to, I think that that's really important to focus on. So I guess, you know, what was really interesting about this was you identified some of the pain points that you had at Uber that led to this being a successful build project. And also, you know, to going beyond that, you know, something that now has a whole ecosystem around it and a number of companies working with it. What do you see coming down the pipe? Like, what are the things that you think are going to be interesting in terms of observability challenges or opportunities in the next year or two? And yeah, I mean, if you want to tie that to what's happening, you know, sort of in the zeitgeist, whether that's keeping up with your vector database and all the inference costs that, you know, are flowing through, or if you want to tie it to something else, you know, just curious, like, yeah, looking out, where do you think the next sort of pain points are going to come from? They're going to cause people to innovate kind of the way you did. Yeah, there's a lot happening out there right now. And I feel the the common theme that's kind of occurring is, you know, you want the infrastructure and developer tools and entire ecosystem to kind of just get out of your way, right? And let you do magical things. You know, GitHub Copilot is obviously like, you know, top of mind for folks helping you write your own code with AI. And of course, there's plenty of other tools out there that just kind of streamline the whole process, right? You know, that's why CI, CD has been such a large focus uh, for probably like over the last 10 years. And I would say that the big thing that I'm seeing in observability especially is you kind of can't really anymore spend so much time self-managing these systems. Like for instance, when we had more static servers, you know, and at Uber I started that we were literally IPMIing into servers to reboot them and stuff like that on bare metal. And, you know, you could kind of really treat them more like pets, right? Mm. And so you could put in a little bit of extra work and get like some nice things back in terms of like really customizing your setup. But nowadays it's kind of turned, yeah, I think to more of a place where the less and less customization you do by hand, the, the better because that means, you know, it kind of streamlines the whole process and you can move between clouds and different 
frameworks and types of things quicker because there's there's more standardization in place. And so mm-hmm. in the observability world, you're also managing all this data, right? Like the data has never been more significant in volume and complex in how you query it. So that kind of management has exploded and that's caused people to slow down a ton, right? And so I guess like uh, what you want to get to is this nirvana where people aren't on call being paged all the time. It's a real big problem. Like you have a single developer spending hours each week answering 20 high urgency pages. That's one of maybe four on the team that doesn't get worked on that week, right? And, you know, I think that the ability for these observability systems to remove certain levels of complexity uh, by themselves, just by managing themselves better, which, you know, Chronosphere is a built on that aspect of it, it has to be more automated, save new costs so that you're not managing the explosion of data, but also, you know, make room for the observability teams of these companies or the SREs to essentially make it that your on-call health is healthy. And that is really what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to make people productive, not distract them with random things that completely drag on the entire team's productivity. And I, I think that you've seen Cribble is, you know, obviously a big new entrant to help people like manage their Splunk and and kind of like similar kind of workloads. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why all these companies and Chronosphere, for instance, have grown so quickly in the past few years. And it's because this is actually a game changer in terms of self-managing the data and making the ability to get to a healthy on-call state much more achievable, right? Like it kind of feels like a cost optimization to some people, but it's much more than that. And it's it's a really about like, hey, this high telemetry data isn't even useful in its current form. So let's reshape and help you manage that more automatically to get out of your way and you can get back to your day job and get your job done quickly. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. Let's shout out a community member who came on Stack Overflow and helped to spread a little knowledge. Awarded November 2nd to Ralph HTP. How do I read an image in Python Open CV? If you're curious, Ralph has provided a great answer and helped over 275,000 people. So we appreciate it, Ralph. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here. You can hit me up on X at Ben Popper. Reach us with questions or suggestions for the show, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you liked it, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me on X, you can find me at rthordonovan. I'm Rob Skillington, the CTO and co-founder at Chronosphere. And if you want to learn more, uh, you should check out Chronosphere's blog. We just announced the Chronosphere Lens launch, which is you know our way of essentially giving you a much better lens into your telemetry data in a very complicated world and in an mm. opinionated way. So you don't have to wade through sprawls of dashboards anymore. Uh, 10,000 of them if you're unlucky. And so, um, yeah, I'd love to see you at AWS reInvent if, if you want to come say hi and feel free to, to get in touch. We're um, very friendly humans, I promise. Awesome. We'll put those links in the show notes and uh, make sure we send some people your way. All right, everybody, thanks for listening as always. And we will talk to you soon. Bye.